be sure to follow Send Me to Sleep on your preferred podcast player so you never miss an episode and a good night's rest. Good evening. Tonight, I'll be reading chapters 25 and 26 of Around. Good evening. Tonight, I'll be reading chapters 29 and 30 of Around the World in 80 Days by Jules Verne. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 29 In which certain incidents are narrated which are only to be met with on American railroads. The train pursued its course that evening without interruption, passing Fort Sanders, crossing Cheney Pass, and reaching Evan Pass. The road here attained the highest elevation of the journey, 8,092 feet above the sea level of the sea. The travellers had now only to descend to the Atlantic by limitless plains, levelled by nature. A branch of the Grand Trunk led off southward to Denver, the capital of Colorado. The country round about is rich in gold and silver, and more than 50,000 inhabitants are already settled there. 1,382 miles had been passed over from San Francisco. In three days and three nights, four days and nights more would probably bring them to New York. Phileas Fogg was not as yet behind hand. During the night, Camp Wallback was passing on the left. Lodgepole Creek ran parallel with the road marking the boundary between the territories of Wyoming and Colorado. They entered Nebraska at eleven, passing near Sedgwick, and touched Julesburg on the southern branch of the Plate River. It was here that the Union Pacific Railroad was inaugurated on the 23rd of October, 1867, by the chief engineer, General Dodge. Two powerful locomotives carrying nine cars of invited guests, among whom was Thomas C. Durant, vice president of the road, stopped at this point. 
cheers were given. The Sui and Pawnees performed an imitation Indian battle. Fireworks were let off, and the first number of the Railway Pioneer was printed by a press brought on the train. Thus was celebrated the inauguration of this great railroad, a mighty instrument of progress and civilization, thrown across the desert and destined to link together cities and towns which do not yet exist. The whistle of the locomotive, more powerful than Amphin's lyre, was about to bid them rise from American soil. Fort McPherson was left behind at eight in the morning, and three hundred and fifty-seven miles had yet to be traversed before reaching Omaha. The road followed the capricious windings of the southern branch of the Platy River on its left bank. At nine, the train stopped at the important town of Morth Plate, built between the two arms of the river, which rejoined each other around it and form a single artery, a large tributary, whose waters empty into the Missouri a little above Omaha. The one hundred and first meridian was passed. Mr. Fogg and his partners had resumed their game. No one, not even the dummy, complained of the length of the trip. Fix had begun by winning several guineas, which he seemed likely to lose, but he showed himself a no less eager whist player. Than Mr. Fogg. During the morning, chance distinctly favoured that gentleman. Trumps and honours were showered upon his hands. Once, having resolved on a bold stroke, he was on the point of playing a spade, when a voice behind him said, I should play a diamond. Mr. Fogg, Uda, and Fix raised their heads and beheld Colonel Proctor. Stamp Proctor and Phileas Fogg recognized each other at once. Ah, it's you, is it, Englishman? cried the Colonel. It's you who are going to play a spade. And who plays it? replied Phileas Fogg coolly throwing down the ten of spades. Well, it pleases me to have it diamonds, replied Colonel Proctor in an insolent tone. He made a movement as if to seize the card which had been played, adding, You don't understand anything about whist. Perhaps I do, as well as another said Phileas Fogg, rising. You have only to try, son of John Bull, replied the colonel. Uda turned pale, and her blood ran cold. 
she seized Mr. Fogg's arm and gently pulled him back. Passepartout was ready to pounce upon the American, who was staring insolently at his opponent. But Fix got up and, going to Colonel Proctor, said, You forget that it is I with whom you have to deal, sir, for it was I whom you not only insulted, but struck. Mr. Fix, said Mr. Fogg, pardon me, but this affair is mine, and mine only. The colonel has again insulted me, by insisting that I should not play a spade and he shall give me satisfaction for it. When and where you will, replied the American, and with whatever weapon you choose. Uda in vain attempted to retain Mr. Fogg, as vainly did the detective endeavour to make the quarrel his. Passepartout wished to throw the colonel out of the window but a sign from his master checked him. Phileas Fogg left the car, and the American followed him upon the platform. Sir, said Mr. Fogg to his adversary, I am in a great hurry to get back to Europe, and any delay whatever will be greatly to my disadvantage. Well, What's that to me? replied Colonel Proctor. Sir, said Mr. Fogg, very politely, after our meeting at San Francisco, I determined to return to America and find you as soon as I had completed the business which called me to England. Really? Will you appoint a meeting for six months hence? Why not ten years hence? I say six months, returned Phileas Fogg, and I shall be at the place of meeting promptly. All this is an evasion, cried Stamp Proctor, now or never. Very good. You are going to New York? No. To Chicago? No. To Omaha? What difference is it to you? Do you know Plum Creek? No, replied Mr. Fogg. It's the next station. The train will be there in an hour, and will stop there ten minutes. In ten minutes, several revolver shots could be exchanged. Very well, said Mr. Fogg. I will stop at Plum Creek. And I guess you'll stay there too, added the American insolently. Who knows, replied Mr. Fogg, returning to the car as coolly as usual. He began to reassure Uda, telling her that blusters were never to be feared, and begged Fix to be second at approaching the duel, a request which the detective could not refuse. Mr. Fogg resumed the interruption.
expected game with perfect calmness. At eleven o'clock, the locomotive's whistle announced that they were approaching Plum Creek. Mr. Fogg rose and, followed by Fix, went out upon the platform. Passepartout accompanied him, carrying a pair of revolvers. Uda remained in the car, as pale as death. The door of the next car opened. The Colonel Proctor appeared on the platform, attended by a Yankee of his own stamp. But just as the combatants were about to step from the train, the conductor hurried up and shouted, You can't get off, gentlemen. Why not? asked the colonel. We are twenty minutes late, and we shall not stop. But I am going to fight a duel with this gentleman. I am sorry, said the conductor, but we shall be off at once. There the bell's ringing now. The train started. I'm really very sorry, gentlemen, the conductor said. Under any other circumstances, I should have been happy to oblige you. But after all, as you have had no time to fight here, why not fight as we go along? That wouldn't be convenient, perhaps, for this gentleman, said the colonel in a jeering tone. It would be perfectly so replied Phileas Fogg. Well, we are really in America, thought Passepartout, and the conductor is a gentleman of the first order. So muttering, he followed his master. The two combatants, their seconds, and the conductor passed through the cars to the rear of the train. The last car, was only occupied by a dozen passengers, whom the conductor politely asked if they would not be so kind as to leave it vacant for a few moments. As two gentlemen had an affair of honour to settle, the passengers granted the request with alacrity and straightway disappeared on the platform. The car, which was some fifty feet long, was very convenient for their purpose. The adversaries might march on each other in the aisle and fire at their ease. Never was duel more easily arranged. Mr. Fogg and Colonel Proctor, each provided with two six-barrel revolvers, entered the car. The seconds, remaining outside, shut them in. They were to begin firing at the first whistle of the locomotive. After an interval of two minutes, what remained of the two gentlemen would be taken from the car. Nothing could be more simple. Indeed, it was all so simple that Fix and Passepartout felt their hearts beating as if they would rack. 
they were listening to the whistle agreed upon, when suddenly savage cries resounded in the air, accompanied by reports which certainly did not issue from the car where the duelists were. The reports continued in front and the whole length of the train. Cries of terror proceeded from the interior cars. Colonel Proctor and Mr. Fogg, revolvers in hand, hastily quitted their prison and rushed forward where the noise was most clamorous. They then perceived that the train was attacked by a band of Sui. This was not the first attempt of these daring Indians, for more than once they had waylaid trains on the railroad. A hundred of them had, according to their habit, jumped upon the steps without the train stopping, with the ease of a clown mounting a horse at full gallop. The Sui were armed with guns, from which came the reports, to which the passengers, who were almost all armed, responded by revolver shots. The Indians had first mounted the engine, and half stunned the engineer, with blows from their musket. A Sui chief, wishing to stop the train, but not knowing how to work the regulator, had opened wide instead of closing the steam valve, and the locomotive was plunging forward with terrific velocity. The Sui had at the same time invaded the cars, skipping like enraged monkeys over the roofs, thrusting open the doors, and fighting hand to hand with the passengers. Penetrating the baggage car, they pillaged it, throwing the trunks out of the train. The cries and shots were constant. The travellers defended themselves bravely. Some of the cars were barricaded and sustained a siege, like moving forts carried along at speed of a hundred miles an hour. Uda behaved courageously from the first. She defended herself like a true heroine with a revolver, which she shot through the broken windows whenever a savage made his appearance. Twenty Sui had fallen mortally wounded to the ground, and the wheels crushed those who fell upon the rails as if they had been worms. Several passengers, shot or stunned, lay on the seats. It was necessary to put an end to the struggle, which had lasted for ten minutes, and which would result in the triumph of the Sui's if the train was not stopped. Fort Kearney Station, where there was a garrison, was only two miles distant, but that once passed, the Sueys would be masters of the train between Fort Kearney and the station beyond. The conductor was fighting beside Mr. Fogg when he was shot and fell. At the same moment he cried, 
Unless the train is stopped in five minutes, we are lost. It shall be stopped, said Phileas Fogg, preparing to rush from the car. Stay, Monsieur, cried Passepartout. I will go. Mr. Fogg had not time to stop the brave fellow, who, opening a door unperceived by the Indians, succeeded in slipping under the car, and while the struggle continued, and the balls whizzed across each other overhead, he made use of his old acrobatic experience, and with amazing agility, worked his way under the cars, holding on to the chains, aiding himself by the bricks and edges of the sashes, creeping from one car to another with marvellous skill, and thus gaining the forward end of the train. There, suspended by one hand between the baggage car and the tender with the other, he loosened the safety chains, but, owing to the traction, he would never have succeeded in unscrewing the yoking bar, had not a violent concussion jolted this bar out. The train, now detached from the engine, remained a little behind, whilst the locomotive rushed forward with increasing speed. Carried on by the force already acquired, the train still moved for several minutes, but the brakes were worked and at last they stopped, less than a hundred feet from Kearney Station. The soldiers of the fort, attracted by the shot, hurried up. The Sueys had not expected them and decamped in a body before the train entirely stopped. But when the passengers counted each other on the station platform, several were found missing, among others the courageous Frenchman whose devotion had just saved them. Chapter 30 In which Phileas Fogg simply does his duty. Three passengers, including Passepartout, had disappeared. Had they been killed in the struggle? Were they taken prisoners by the Sueys? It was impossible to tell. There were many wounded, but none mortally. Colonel Proctor was one of the most seriously hurt. He had fought bravely and a ball had entered his groin. He was carried into the station with the other wounded passengers to receive such attention as could be availed. Uda was safe, and Phileas Fogg, who had been in the thickest of the fight, had not received a scratch. Fix was slightly wounded in the arm, but Passepartout was not to be found and tears coursed down Uda's cheeks. All the passengers had got out of the train, the wheels of which were stained with blood, from the tires and spokes hung ragged pieces of flesh. As far as the eye could reach 
patch on the white plain behind, red trails were visible. The last Sui were disappearing in the south, along the banks of the Republican River. Mr. Fogg, with folded arms, remained motionless. He had a serious decision to make. Uda, standing near him, looked at him without speaking, and he understood her look. If his servant was a prisoner, ought he not to risk everything to rescue him from the Indians? I will find him, dead or living, said he quietly to Uda. Ah, Mr. Mr. Fogg, cried she, clasping his hands and covering them with tears. Living, added Mr. Fogg, if we do not lose a moment. Phileas Fogg, by this resolution, inevitably sacrificed himself. He pronounced his own doom. The delay of a single day would make him lose the steamer at New York, and his bet would be a certain loss. But as he thought, it is my duty, he did not hesitate. The commanding officer of Fort Kearney was there. A hundred of his soldiers had placed themselves in a position to defend the station, should the Sueys attack it. Sir, said Mr. Fogg to the captain, three passengers have disappeared. Dead? asked the captain. Dead or prisoners? That is the uncertainty which must be solved. Do you propose to pursue the Sueys? That's a serious thing to do, sir, returned the captain. These Indians may retreat beyond the Arkanas, and I cannot leave the fort unprotected. The lives of three men are in question, sir, said Phileas Fogg. Doubtless, but can I risk the lives of fifty men to save three? I don't know whether you can, sir, but you ought to do so. Nobody here, returned the other, has a right to teach me my duty. Very well, said Mr. Fogg coldly. I will go alone. You, sir, cried Fix, coming up. You go alone in pursuit of the Indians. Would you have me leave this poor fellow to perish, him to whom everyone present owes his life? I shall go. No, sir, you shall not go alone, cried the captain, touched in spite of himself. No, you are a brave man. Thirty volunteers, he added, turning to the soldiers. The whole company started forward at once. The captain had only to pick his men. Thirty were chosen, and an old surgeon placed at their head. Thanks, captain, said Mr. Fogg. Will you let me go with you? asked Fix. Do as you please, sir, but if you wish to do me a favour, you will remain with Uda, in case anything should happen to me. 
A sudden pallor overspread the detective's face. Separate himself from the man whom he had so persistently followed step by step. Leave him to wander about this desert. Fix gazed attentively at Mr. Fogg, and, despite his suspicions and of the struggle which was going on with him, he lowered his eyes before that calm and frank look. I will stay, said he. A few moments after Mr. Fogg pressed the young woman's hand, and, having confided to her his precious carpet bag, went off with the sergeant and his little squad. But, before going, he had said to the soldiers, My friends, I will divide five thousand dollars among you, if we save the prisoners. It was then a little past noon. Udo retired to a waiting room, and there she waited alone, thinking of the simple and noble generosity, the tranquil courage of Phileas Fogg. He had sacrificed his fortune, and was now risking his life, all without hesitation, from duty in silence. Fix did not have the same thoughts, and could scarcely conceal his agitation. He walked feverishly up and down the platform, but soon resumed his outward composure. He now saw the folly of which he had been guilty in letting Fogg go alone. What? This man, whom he had just followed around the world, was permitted now to separate himself from him. He began to accuse and abuse himself, and, as if he were director of police, administered to himself a sound lecture for his greenness. I have been an idiot, he thought, and this man will see it. He has gone and won't come back. But how is it that I, Fix, have in my pocket a warrant for his arrest, have been so fascinated by him? Decidedly, I am nothing but an ass. So reasoned the detective while the hours crept by all too slowly. He did not know what to do. Sometimes he was tempted to tell Uda all, but he could not doubt how the young woman would receive this confidence. What course should be taken? He thought of pursuing Fogg across that vast white plain. It did not seem impossible that he might overtake him. Footsteps were easily printed on the snow. But soon, under a new sheet, every imprint would be affected. Fix became discouraged. He felt a sort of insurmountable longing to abandon the game altogether. He could now leave Fort Kearney Station and pursue his journey homeward in peace. 